Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year, if I haven't seen you yet, uh, in 2020. It's good to have you here. Uh, welcome to our family gathering. It's good to see you. Um, we are starting out uh, the new year. I guess it's not the first Sunday of the new year, but it's the first Sunday of a new series that we're doing. Uh, and so that begins today. It's going to run all the way through Easter. Uh, and what we're doing in this time together uh, over the next few months is that we're looking at the life of Jesus uh, as presented through uh, the, each of the four Gospels. Um, if you remember this, if you were around last year, we began 2019 by looking at Jesus' teaching. So we, we were paying close attention, especially to places uh, where his teaching was somewhat difficult to understand or difficult to appropriate into our lives. Um, but we were looking primarily at his teaching. This year, what we're going to be doing as we, as we start the new year together is that we're going to be looking at Jesus' being. And what I mean by that is we're going to be looking specifically, closely, at how Jesus demonstrates the presence of God as he lives his life with his people. And then what that presence does to those that are near to him. Um, and this is going to kind of go along with our 90-day uh, Bible reading plan that John mentioned already, so if you uh, want to get on that, he gave you the details for how to do it. Uh, you can find that in our, um, our electronic bulletin. Um, but one of the things that we, we, we hope to see, thank you, hon, um, as we kind of read through the Gospels together, as we uh, teach through uh, many of the Gospels together, is that one of the things that we want to kind of like hold in our minds is that whatever your picture of God is like, and, and all of us come uh, into a relationship with God with a picture in our minds of what he's, he's like, how he operates, what, what his character is, how he responds to us. But one of the things that you have to know is that God is always exactly, not like the picture that you have in your mind, but exactly like Jesus. In fact, he, he is never anything but what Jesus demonstrates Him to be. Because He says the Father and I are one. And that, so that means that He's the most accurate picture that we have of what God is like. And so His life then demonstrates what it looks like to be near to God. And for God to be near to us. And one of the most profound things that, that you and I can realize when we, when we look at Jesus, one of the things that sets Jesus apart from every other human being, um, obviously he's a particular kind of human being because we believe he's God in the flesh, but what sets him apart is not just his divinity, it's his presence. Jesus is the most present man who has ever lived. He is continually and always in the moment whenever he's with people. And we're going to see that as we, as we go along. And we're going to see what that presence does to people as he draws close to them. Um, I, I, I've thought about uh, naming this series a made-up word that, was like, that I sort of made up um, called withness, but Pete wouldn't let me. Oh, come on. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's what we're going to be looking at together is, is Jesus' withness. What, what does it mean for him to be with us? And 
I didn't intend for this to be a series in the Gospel, particularly of John, but it turns out, if you want to know the answer to that question, what does it look like for God to be near us, um, the Gospel of John is actually one of, is the most incredible place to look. And so we're going to begin that process. We're actually going to be looking at um, Jesus with his disciples as he begins to call them to himself. Uh, and so we're going to be in John 1, um, verses 35 to 51 today. Um, but I want to start this morning um, by praying and by asking for God to be with us. So let's pray. Father, we uh, recognize and acknowledge that um, apart from you, we can do nothing. That if you aren't here in this place among us, living in us, that all of this, the, the electronics, the, the preaching, the singing, the music, uh, the ministry to our kids, if you're not at the very center of it, if it's not for you and because of you and leading to you, then it's all for nothing. But we thank you that your desire to meet with us is far more than ours to meet with you. That you've literally gone through hell to be here with us today. So God, I ask that you would come and and communicate in words and in experiences and in ways that we can't put words on your presence with us as we open your word we ask in Jesus name amen so John 1 starting in verse 35 it says the next day John was there again with two of his disciples John meaning John the Baptist we're kind of coming in mid uh, mid story here and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the, two, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. 
You'll see greater things than that. And then he added, Truly, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, there's a lot happening here and there's so many nuances and things that, that um, well, we'll see what God brings out of this. But one of the things I want you to, to, to focus on is how this whole story begins. Because Jesus um, asks a very peculiar question to these men who are kind of tracking him down on the road. And it's the same question that he asks every would-be disciple of his. Do you know what the question was? What do you want? What are you after? What are you seeking? And it's, it's interesting because... Um, as the church, we, we often think that the way that we begin a relationship with Jesus is by him asking to us, essentially, what do you believe? Right? What do you, what's your theology? Like, what, what do you think about Jesus? What, what's your perception of what he's like? And that's not where Jesus begins a relationship with these guys. He begins a relationship with them by asking them, what do you desire? What are your aspirations? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are you looking for as you, you know, tracking after me? And, and I, I just want you to, I want you to maybe pause and think just for a second. And put yourself in the story. If Jesus were asking you that same question, how would you answer it? What are you seeking from me? Jesus asks you. What are your desires? And he's not, he, he's concerned about the little stuff, right? He, God is in the details of life. He, he, he shows his presence through the mundane. That's not what I'm saying here, but he, he, he's not just asking about the little things. I mean, oftentimes we think maybe the only, there are only the little things that we can bring to God. Like, I just need a little bit more patience today. Or I just need a little bit more money to get home. Or I just need a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Because we're, we're afraid almost to ask for like the big things of life. And when Jesus turns to these men, he's, 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 he's not just saying to them, Hey, what are you guys up to today? <laughs> like, do you, do you need some pocket change? No, he, he's asking them, what is it that you want for your life? What are your aspirations? What do you wish to be true at the end of the day, if not the end of your life? So what do you, when you think about a relationship with Jesus, what are you after? He's asking you. Now, I, I think um, for most of us, it, it, it can kind of break down into three fundamental human aspirations. And, and we talk about these a lot, but they, they're kind of universally true of every human being that we need to find answers to these three things. And you can find answers to a whole lot of other questions, but if you don't have answers to these three things, 
then it, it really doesn't make a difference. You'll still be left feeling empty. Um, and so the, these three aspirations, which, which actually Jesus begins to tap into for uh, these disciples, are purpose, identity, and communion. Purpose, identity, and communion. If, if I could frame each of them in the form of a question, purpose would sound like, what is my calling? Identity would sound like, who am I? And communion would sound like, where do I belong? And every human being, it doesn't matter your religious affiliation, it doesn't matter if you claim to be an agnostic or an atheist or a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist, you are seeking the answers to those three questions every day of your life, whether you recognize it or not. What am I called to? Who am I? And where do I belong? And, and because we're all seeking answers to these, these kind of fundamental questions of life, um, we often live, and I'm talking about the human condition here, we live with a, a sort of low drum of anxiety that we may or may not find the answers to those questions. And the longer you live through life, the more cynical we become that maybe those answers don't exist. We're, we'll talk about why um, for, for each of those we're, we're a little bit um, off kilter when it comes to seeking those aspirations, but we all have them. And so, so here's the good news that we want to proclaim this morning. The good news is that while sin has distorted our aspirations, in the presence of Jesus, our deepest aspirations are both transformed and fulfilled if we would only come and see. While the sin has distorted our aspirations in the presence of Jesus, our deepest aspirations, deepest desires are both transformed and fulfilled if only we would come and see. So, so let's, let's talk about each of these uh, aspirations as they kind of get fleshed out in this story, okay? Um, and the first one we talked about is purpose or, or calling, you might say. Um, I don't know if you know this but about ancient Israel, but um, little boys in ancient Israel did not grow up thinking, maybe someday I will be a baseball player. Right? Baseball didn't exist. They didn't grow up thinking, maybe I'll be a great football player. Football didn't exist. The American kind or the, the one the rest of the world plays. <laughs> uh, um, they didn't grow up primarily thinking, I'm going to be a great politician because it was a class system and there were people that occupied those stations in society. And so you didn't think, grow up thinking, I'm going to amass great uh, wealth and power. What you did grow up thinking is, maybe, just maybe, I will be somebody in the religious system of my day. And little boys were groomed from a very young age to think, possibly they would have what it takes in order to be not a rock star sports athlete, but a rock star rabbi. Now you chuckle, like, because that, I mean, that sounds silly, right? I mean, what is it, a rock star rabbi? Like, what, you know, 
can he dunk on all the other rabbis? Like, what, what does that mean, you know? Um, but that, that was, the, that was the, 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 the apex of uh, what you might be called to. And, and it, was, it was seen as such a crucial function within ancient Israel in the first century that, that every young boy was groomed as if to be that someday. And so it got you thinking, maybe I would be part of that inner enclave of rabbis or priests or scribes or Pharisees or Sadducees. Now, now, the thing you have to know is, by the time you're a young man, and I mean a young man with a profession, and we know these guys are like fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors and by virtue of the fact that they, are, they, have, resi- they have gone back to their family um, occupation means that that calling has come and gone. Do you get what I'm saying? So, so Jesus isn't roaming through Galilee going, who are the rock stars? Who are the best of the best? Like, the, 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 the religious farm system of the day has passed these guys up because they didn't have what it takes. And so you, you, you just kind of live through life going, okay, like I'm, I'm following in my, my dad's footsteps. I'm going to be a carpenter like him or a fisherman like him. And it depended on the town you lived in and the family that you grew up in. And so you, for these men, the answer of calling seemed to be answered once and for all. And then Jesus comes on the scene and begins to call them. And that's a very loaded term. Now, just pause on that for a second. Let me just ask you the question. When it comes to the dominant narrative, the dominant story of our culture, when people talk about, think about, maybe even us, when we think about what our purpose is for living, like the the meaning for our existence, what are, like what's the, populist answer of our day. Okay? Be happy. Successful. In what? Okay. So to be popular, to be wealthy, which means to be uh, content. Yeah? Okay, live your best life yet. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> right. Yeah, kind of be, be the best version of yourself. Live your best life now. Which usually means like success and happiness and contentment and wealth and safety and uh, comfort. We're big on comfort. What else? Yeah. Uh-huh. So to kind of be at the top of the ladder in your profession, which usually comes along with it, like everybody respects you or thinks well of you, or you, um, you, you've kind of risen to a degree or you think you, you might someday get to a, a rung on the ladder where you can kind of look at yourself in the mirror and go, yeah, I've achieved something in life. And then you get to that rung and you realize like that one didn't do it and that one didn't do it and that one didn't do it. See, we're all looking for an answer to that question of like, what, 
what can give my life purpose? Now, here's something that you may not know. Here's something that's going on uh, culturally right now that maybe you don't realize is going on. So let me just pull back the curtain for a second. Is that there, there are thousands of companies right now whose primary job it is uh, to convince you that you are discontent with your life as it currently stands. And they are masterful at it. And so every day you wake up and you see advertisements on your phone and your TV and um, you see product placement ads in the, in the movies that you watch and, and you, you see all these things and the message continually again and again and again is your life has no meaning. If you buy this, your life will have meaning. You will get the thing that you're after as long as you have what I have. But then you buy the thing that they have and then you realize, like, again, it's that you've just subscribed to the next thing and it doesn't do it for you until the next iPhone comes out or the next, you know, uh, product comes out. And that's going to be the one to solve your issues. And so this is the purpose of life that you're sold every day. And you're being discipled into this purpose whether or not you realize it or not. That you... that that your greatest aspiration in life should be a life of, of comfort and satisfaction. And that that comes through consuming goods. Now, when I put it that way, does that sound like a fulfilling life? <laughs> it doesn't. As soon as you pull the curtain back, you go, that's no wizard. <laughs> It's just a little guy pulling levers. Like, it gets unmasked and exposed for what it really is. And yet it doesn't take away its power to control and dominate your life every single day. And it's dominating the life of every single person around you. The whole reason that people show up to work where you live is so that they can make enough money to go home on the weekends and consume the things that the culture tells them that they need to consume. Which means all of us are enslaved to this purpose that doesn't fulfill, that doesn't satisfy. That's why calling is so important. Because one of the things that Jesus does when he calls us, when he brings us to himself, is that he starts to, to undermine the, the, the purpose for which we think that we're living. He starts to reprogram us so that we might live for a different reason. One that's not connected to what you consume, but one that's connected to his very presence so that you would be a vessel of that presence everywhere that you go. So two people go to work tomorrow morning, same office, same hours, same pay. One of them is living in that environment to get their purpose so that they can achieve something in life. The, the other one is there because they have a purpose, and that purpose is to be a disciple of Jesus who embodies and communicates the presence of God everywhere they go. Do you see how those two days are going to work themselves out differently, even under the same conditions? 
Now, you might think, like, it's too late for me. You know? Like, maybe, you know, my, my story is like I came to know Jesus in college and God started to stir this sort of calling in me uh, at, at, like, the age of 21. But maybe you're not 21. Maybe you're 61. You're like, it's over for me, you know? <laughs> like, maybe if it were six decades ago, but, but not today. And I just want to remind you, like, the presence of God is still available to you. And so long as the presence of God is available to you, your, your purpose in life can flow out of that presence. Um, I mean, a great example of this is Peter, right? Um, and I love this scene where, where Peter is brought to Jesus, and it says this in verse 42. Um, he brought Simon to, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. I've always, like, I've always loved this, to like, play with this scene in my mind. of like, hi, I'm Simon. And Jesus goes, hey, Peter. Like, no, you didn't, you didn't hear my name correctly. He's like, oh, no, I know your name. It's Simon, but you're not going to be called Simon. Anymore, I'm going to call you Peter. Okay. Like, <laughs> and I love this because Jesus gives him no indication of why he's changing his name. He just says, no, you're not going to be called that anymore. Okay. Now, like, what do I do now, you know? Um, it, but here's the thing that you need to know about calling, and this is particular... Uh, for Peter, and, and it works itself out in our lives. What does Peter mean? You guys know this. It means rock, right? Is, those of you who know anything about Peter's life, is that an accurate description of what Peter looks like at this point in time and even for the next few years? Not for a good... I mean, so if rock means like dependability, faithfulness, assuredness, like weightiness. Uh, he doesn't fit the bill. I mean, if, if rock means stubborn or like <laughs> causes other people to trip, like that's fine. But that's not typically the imagery um, that was used in the first century for that so sort of person. An imagery would be more like stiff-neckedness. Like that, that's... That would be more the idea. Rock means dependability, and Peter doesn't fit the bill. And the reason he doesn't fit the bill is because Jesus was not describing who Peter was that day. Jesus was describing who Peter would be as Jesus turns him into someone through his calling to him. He's saying to, to Peter, I, I will make you into a dependable foundation of my new community. But you don't look that way today. And that's, that's the way that calling works. When Jesus calls you, he makes you by his call whatever he calls you. It's not a description of who you are in and of yourself. And it's not a, a description of, of, of 
what you might consume. It's a description of who you are and who you will be as you draw near to Him. And everybody gets a call. Um, one of the things that we say is, is that if you're a child of God, you're also a disciple of Jesus, you're also a missionary of the Holy Spirit. And they come as a package deal. You don't get one without the other. It's a triune identity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They work together in tandem. And so if, if you are a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, if you say, yes, I've, I've gone from being an enemy to being one of his dearly beloved children, then, then he has a family profession for his kids. And that, that's why Jesus' call remains open to his disciples because he's, he's, in a sense, calling them out of their, their families of origin into a new community where everyone takes up the Father's work. And that work, that purpose, that meaning for your life as well as it is for mine. And, and mine is, let me tell you, mine is no different just because I'm on a stage than yours is. All of us have that same purpose and calling, which is to be vessels of God's presence and power to the world. An embodiment of the Spirit of God as He lives and breathes through us. As we love other people and as we, we speak about the presence of God as He's come to dwell in our midst. Now, where you get called... And, and what role you end up playing is going to be particular to what God wants to do in you. Jesus didn't call everyone Peter. He didn't just go, okay, you all now are a bunch of Peters, you know. No, it was Simon that became Peter. And that, again, that wasn't just something to, to say Peter is now better somehow than the rest of the disciples. Because each of them end up having some kind of role to play in this new community. And the same will be true for you. Now, some of you maybe have an idea of what that calling looks like, and others of you, you have no clue. But here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to entertain the thought that Jesus wants to meet your great, one of your greatest desires in what he calls you to do. That, the, that actually those two things are one and the same. Now, I can't tell you what that is, actually. Jesus has to do that. And that's why we have to come and see. So that's, that's purpose. Um, the next is identity. is this question of who are we? Um, so for that, let's look at this interaction with Nathaniel in verse 47 to 48. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Um, Nathanael hasn't even gotten a chance to open his mouth. And Jesus has read him like a book. I mean, there's, there's part of me that's like a little bit afraid of that. You know, like, you're walking up to Jesus. You, you haven't even gotten a chance to, like, say who you are. And Jesus goes, I know exactly who you are. 
And uh, he, Jesus isn't just like intuitive. He's not just, he doesn't just have a keen read on people. He knows them. Because he says to Nathaniel, I know something about you. You are a transparent person. I don't see any deceit in you. Now, how in the world could you know that about somebody unless you spent time with them? You have to see the pattern of somebody's life for a long period of time to go, yep, the person that they say they are is the person they are on the inside and vice versa. I mean, I've known people for decades and I don't know if I could answer that question. But Jesus can. And Nathaniel's response to that is, how do you know that about me? How in the world could you possibly know that about me? And Jesus goes, know that about you. I've seen it in you. In fact, I saw it in you when you were under that fig tree. Now, like, do you ever wonder what Jesus was watching and what, what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree that Jesus knew about? Do you want to know? I do too. Could you, do, I don't know. <laughs> so, so if you know, please share it with me, because I don't. Yeah, I guess so. I'm going to ask Jesus someday, you know, what was he doing under that tree? Yeah, who knows, you know. Um, I, I, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that whatever Jesus knew about him, whatever, whatever he saw was so personal, it was so significant and so impossible for any human being to know that it took Nathaniel's breath away. If he knows that about me. Now, like I said, that there, there's an aspect of this that might freak us out a little bit as we think about kind of drawing close to Jesus, that he knows everything about us. But just think about this with, you know, Nathaniel is, um, you know, Jesus said there's no deceit in him, but, it, but it's not as if Nathaniel's a, like on par with Jesus. Because if, if Jesus can see that there's no deceit in him, he can see all the other junk in, it, in his life as well. And what does he say? Come on in. And there, there's a, there's a particular grace for me in remembering and in knowing that Jesus knows me better than I know myself. And that He accepts me as I am, but He, he won't allow me to stay as I am. That he's no, He knows where I've been, but He doesn't want to leave me uh, in those places. And so th that means that there's a tremendous amount of freedom with Jesus. To, to be who you are, to, 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 to expose the parts of your life to Him because you know that, one, He already knows them, and two, He wants to transform you through them and not condemn you because of them. And that because He, he wants the real you and the real me, not just the cleaned up version that we want to present to Him, and that He's seen our most private thoughts and feelings. And yet he, he goes to the cross on our behalf just the same. 
He rises from the dead just the same. He calls us to himself just the same. And that that should tell you that, that Jesus is the safest place that you can run to to know who you are. Um, I, there's this cultural narrative, again, that's kind of going on um, in our day that says, basically, if you want to know yourself, then, then you can't trust anyone. Like, so if, if you really want to know yourself, if you want to discover who you are, you don't do it by putting yourself out there and... and and allowing other to speak into your life, gosh, we, we can't possibly allow that. We need to discover who we are as an autonomous individual. And so, so we, we, dis we, we discover, the way this plays itself out is we discover ourselves through self-help, right? What is self-help? It's, it's looking to yourself for the help that you need. Because you can't trust anybody else. Except for the person who's telling you you can only trust yourself. Which is actually the one person you shouldn't trust. Or, or we do it through, you know, experimentation. We think, I need to find myself. And so we experiment with things like, like, like intimacy. Or through drugs and alcohol. We think, I need to have these experiences in order to find myself. Many of us aren't that extreme, um, and we understand that there's damage there, so instead of running to experimentation with substances or with people, we experiment with travel. And we think, if I just see enough of the world and experience enough cultures or, or, or see the Eiffel Tower, you know, I'll look up at it, and then I'll suddenly realize who I am. Many of us do this in relationships. And we give ourselves over to people asking the question, can you tell me who I am? And not, here's the problem with this, is that all of this leaves you emptier than you began. You know, like, you experiment enough with, with, with substances or with travel and you realize, like, you're not going to have anything left in your bank account. Um, so, so not only is it going to leave you emptier financially, but it doesn't solve the question of who you are. It doesn't, it doesn't lead you to a firmer sense of your identity. It just gives you more options. And, and, and when you pile on all those options, it creates this paralysis that you don't know where to go or who you are or who to turn to. And it actually makes you feeling, leaves you feeling less of a person rather than more. And that's what autonomy does. The more autonomous you are, the more detached you become from yourself. The more autonomous you are, the more detached you become from yourself. And so the truth is, the only way that we're going to know ourselves better, that we're going to understand who we are and begin to live out of that sense of a grounded identity is by discovering who we are as we come close enough to the one who made us and the one who offers himself to us as a guide through life because he's the one who formed us. You know, Jesus understands you. 
He gets you better than you get yourself. He knows what's troubling you better than you can get handles on it. And so you need not look for another. Come and see. Uh, the last one is, um, is that in the presence of Jesus, we discover our belonging. Uh, there's this peculiar um, response that Jesus gives to Nathaniel at the end of this little section. Um, when he says, you know, Nathaniel says, um, you know, I was under the fig tree, and, and he realizes that Jesus knows him. And, and again, Jesus kind of calls out what uh, the source of Nathaniel's wonder. But he says to him, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's referring to himself. Now here's the thing. We don't know of any place in John's Gospel or in the other three where this picture of angels ascending and descending happens on Jesus in such a way where people go, oh, this is it. Like, this is the thing he was talking about, you know? And it's because Jesus isn't pointing forward to um, kind of a future picture, he's pointing backwards to something that they already would have remembered. And the thing that he's pointing back to is this weird um, situation in the life of Jacob. It happens in Genesis 28. If you remember, um, Jacob is on the run from his brother, and he is wondering... You know, where is God in, in, in the midst of all this? He's been a schemer his, his entire life and he's manipulated all the people around him. You think this is the guy who's like furthest from God uh, in the entire story up until this point. And, and so he's exhausted from running and he basically collapses. And that night in a dream, he sees a ladder appear that bridges the gap between heaven and earth, between God and us. And he sees angels or messengers of God ascending and descending through that space. And um, it, you know, it's this amazing picture that God gives to him to, to reassure Jacob that he's with him. But what's interesting is that that place takes on a certain connotation the place where this happened becomes known as Bethel, which just means house of God. And, and so for years, this place ended up being kind of a significant religious um, cultural kind of point where people would flock from all over. Generation after generation would come to this place with the hope that God would gap the, 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 the divide between them and his presence. That, that if I just go to Bethel, I'm, I'll experience what he's like. I'll see a glimpse of, of his presence, if only for a brief moment. And this became a, a pilgrimage site based on this one dream that one guy had thousands of years ago. And Jesus, of all instances brings this up when talking to Nathaniel saying here's the things that you're you now have access to as you're in my presence and what Jesus is saying is this it wasn't just a dream it was a promise
But if you follow me, you'll experience greater things than a pilgrimage to Bethel. Because I'm the walking presence of God. I am the link between heaven and earth. And when you are near to me, you are near to communion with God. And for us, this means a couple things. It, it means first and foremost that if you, if you have Jesus, then, then you have this ladder everywhere that you go. That there, there is no, I mean, we, we you know, not, as far as I know, nobody here was thinking, I want to go to Bethel in Israel, you know? Like, it, that, if I just went there, I would experience God in a way that I've never experienced before. But maybe you thought of Israel that way. Or, or maybe you thought of, you know, a certain lake up in the mountains that way. Or maybe you think about the beach that way. Or I, I don't know what that sort of, you know, um, that, that point where you think heaven and earth touch for you, you know. But I think we all have this, like, idealized place in our mind where this happens. Maybe for you it's Sunday mornings underneath a steeple. It's not that any of those places are bad or that you can't connect with God in any of those places, but know this, that Jesus is the walking presence of God. And if you have His Spirit living in you, then you have the ladder everywhere that you go. And now, that, that experience gets heightened when we're in community with one another, and that's what this is all about. That's what we do when we gather in our homes. That's why the... The, the community of God's people is so important because you're not just a temple in and of yourself. Remember, autonomy doesn't lead to presence. But the community of God, together we experience this heaven on earth touching, coming together as we come together as one. And it's available to you to come and see. But the, the second thing is that if Jesus is Emmanuel, if if he is this ladder come down to heaven, the other good news that you need to know is that you don't need to climb the ladder anymore. You know, like we said with the purpose thing, all of us are climbing a ladder to try to get something, to be something, to, 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 to connect with something because we think it's just one rung up. And I think part of the reason why Jesus uses this analogy is because he realizes our tendency to try to seek after the things that he wants to give to us by grace. That, that what you're seeking, whether it's communion with God, whether it's a, a grounded sense of identity, whether it's your calling and purpose in the world, Jesus has come down the ladder to give it to you in his presence. You don't need to look elsewhere. no matter what our desire is, whether it's for purpose or identity or belonging, each one of us, is that question is answered by the same invitation. Come and see. Come and see. Now, just as we close, how do you do that? How do you do that? I just want to mention a couple things and, and then we're going to pray and ask God to come. But the first one is, um, is to, you have to realize that you have certain assumptions and expectations of what that's going to look like. And you need to throw those out, to be honest. 
Be, because I, I, all of us have these, and, and Nathaniel's such a great picture of it, because he says to Jesus, like, or I guess he says this to Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, that's not the place I was expecting this answer to my deepest desires to come from. Like, one, I thought that the, that the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And two, Nazareth is somewhat of a, like, we compete with Nazareth. Like, there's a rivalry between my town and theirs. It's almost like, you know, following somebody from, you know, for an Eagles fan, would be like from Dallas, you know? Like, how could I follow someone like that? And so it, it came in an unexpected way. It came from an unexpected source. And all of us, we kind of come into a relationship with these um, assumptions or prejudices about the people that God's going to work through or the ways that he's going to work. And we have to be aware of those things. And take captive those things if we're going to experience them. Now, the second one is that, and I've already mentioned this to some degree, is that we need to look together. So we need to look past our assumptions, but we also have to look um, together. You, you notice that none of these, uh, these guys get called to Jesus and they go, sure, I'll come, and then they come by themselves. Every single one of them says, I know somebody that needs to come with me. I know somebody that would make this experience better. I know somebody that needs to be at your feet as well. And there's something about being a disciple of Jesus, again, that that as we come to him together, as we share the experience with one another, it ends up becoming more real. And so I just encourage you, we're going to do a 90-day reading plan, yes. And I'm hoping that you'll experience the presence of Jesus as you, as you engage with his word. Maybe it's been a long time for you, and, and so just getting back into it would be a good thing. But, but there's this, at least in the app, there's this little tab on there that says share this together or something like that, or I forget what it is. It's always the third one or the second one where you, you just get to like type out what God's saying to you, and you'll get to read what other people are, are hearing as they engage the word. Don't skip over that part. <laughs> Because we have to look together. And then the last one is, um, is to look continually. Um, did it strike you as odd that when Jesus asked them what they want, they reply with another question? And what do they ask Jesus? Where are you staying? Like, that's a weird question. But the reason that they ask it is because they want to know not just where Jesus is shacked up for the night. They, they, they want to know where, where are you going to be so that I can be with you? Because they realize that life with a rabbi means life over time. It means getting up and spending time with him. It means eating meals with him. It means going to bed next to him. It, it's an all-of-life endeavor. And, and, and John, when he says the words, where are you staying? It's actually, it's the Greek word meno, which is to abide. And that, again, that's a loaded term for John. And, and what that tells us is that being a disciple means 
that it's going to take time. Time in God's presence. Time with God's people. A commitment to putting yourself out there, to being open and available and honest both with Him and with His people. In a, in a, culture, that, in a culture that says to you, only stick around so long as you get fulfillment. Only make a commitment so long as you're seeing a return on your investment. The most radical thing that you can do in this culture is to stay somewhere. Is to abide. Is to abide with a community. Is to abide with Jesus. Is to, is to limit the distractions that you allow into your life and say, I will create the margin necessary to experience the presence of God and I will do it today and tomorrow and the next day until I see purpose, meaning, identity, and communion. And so, will you abide Will you abide with him? Because he's come to abide with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that um, you have made yourself available to us. That as much as uh, we may think that we have come looking for you, the reality is that you've come looking for us. God, I thank you that we don't need to stifle our desires or fulfill them elsewhere. But we can do a radical thing, which is to submit our desires to you. So God, if we're, whatever it is, if we are seeking after purpose, would you come and meet us in the midst of that seeking? If we're seeking identity and maybe we've, we're feeling more disconnected from ourselves than ever, would you come and show us that we are your children, safe in your arms? If we're longing for communion, may, maybe we've been disconnected from other people or we feel isolated and alone. We feel this anxiety that we need to go somewhere or do something or be something in order to connect with someone or to connect with you. Help us to know that you are here in this room, that the Son of God has come down the ladder. You are among your people today. And we only need to come and see and abide in you. Or would you teach us how this looks today and tomorrow. Make us a radical people of your presence, vessels that show the world what you're like. We ask that your glory would spread in us and among the people that you love in South Jersey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.